first scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 23, verses 23 through 35. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now the scriptures, Acts 24, verses, verse 27 through chapter 25, verse 12. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And now Acts 25, verse 23 through chapter 26, verse 1. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. 
Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me against him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. This is the word of the Lord. healing and for blessing. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, uh, we look back and we see Jim Bennington here again this morning, and we thank you. Thank you for answered prayer. Thank you for returning him to us. We, We thank you for how, Father, week after week, You speak through this entire church. Uh, We speak to this entire church through the Holy Spirit in the life of Jim. We thank you for him. We pray that you would continue to bless him, strengthen him day by day and week by week. Our Father, we pray for Tom Morgan this morning. He is, Father, in need of your healing. He's in need of physical strength and that strength that can only come from you. And so this morning we lift him up to you and we pray that you would bring healing. Father, bring healing to his body, bring healing to his mind, bring healing to his heart. In every way, we pray that you would strengthen him and bless him. Father, may he know your presence in that rehab center. And now, our Father, we come in thanksgiving for your word, and we pray that this day you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn this morning is a hymn and prayer for illumination. Let's stand together as we sing this hymn and pray and ask for God to speak to us through his word. Now, children, you may go to your respective classes. We return to the scripture that we read with Mary this morning from three different, from Acts 23, from Acts 24, from Acts 26. We could have read actually from Acts 23 all the way through Acts 26. Uh, And we will refer to those passages, all those passages uh, in the message this morning. 
we return this after taking a break for the Lenten season and rest, resurrection, we return to the book of Acts. And maybe as you read this, as you heard it read this morning, you might have been thinking, now, what's this about? Uh, skipping around and, and, and these different passages about Paul's imprisonment with the Romans. This message this morning is extremely close to me. Uh, with, with what we have been through uh, in our home uh, since the end of, of last summer. And uh, there's just a powerful, powerful lesson uh, that uh, for us to learn in our individual lives, for us to learn as families, and for us to learn as a church in the verses that were read this morning. Where is God when nothing goes as planned? Let's set it in context. Paul had returned to Jerusalem after his third church planning journey to make a report to the leadership in Jerusalem, the leadership of the church. His plan had been to visit Jerusalem make this report, sum up his three missionary journeys and church planning journeys, then leave Jerusalem, travel to Spain by way of Rome, stopping there to visit the church in Rome. But what happened? He was arrested while he was in Jerusalem and for his own safety, had been transferred to a prison in Caesarea on the seacoast. The story told in Acts 23 through Acts 26 covers a period of two to three years. Paul was in jail in Caesarea for over two years. How does one stay on an even keel, when your plans are over here and you end up completely over here in a different place. I spoke to a friend of mine this week. Uh, He called in the providence of God while I was writing this message. During the financial crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, he went from being worth several million dollars to complete bankruptcy. He lost his cars. He lost his house. He lost the furnishings in his house. He was literally left penniless. He could have easily been on the street homeless. Those weren't his plans. His plans included nothing like that. He was a Christian. 
who came to church every Sunday. He loved God. He loved his word. He was astute in his business. What happens when nothing goes as planned? We need to answer that question and keep that answer in our hearts ready because this happens in all of our lives. There is no one here this morning that has not experienced that. There's no one here who will not experience that in the future. It may be that plans go awry for a day. It means that plans go awry for a week. It may be for a month. It means that plans may go awry for five years or ten years. That's a serious thing. What happens? You know that that families break apart at such times. Divorce happens. Separation happens. These things can be devastating. Where's God when nothing goes as planned? I want us to look at this passage and first see an unexpected avenue to a God-given goal. An unexpected way, an unexpected street, an unexpected avenue to a God-given goal. Here was the plan. We've already said it. I want to go back to it. Here was the plan. On his last journey of planting churches in Western Asia and Eastern Europe, Paul spent the winter in Corinth. Now, this was before he returned to Jerusalem. When he spent that winter in Corinth, he wrote a letter to the church at Rome, a great letter. It's a letter that we now know as... Romans, the book of Romans. It was a letter to the church at Rome. And in the letter, in the, near the end of the letter, he lays out his plans of leaving Corinth and going to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to look at that to get this down, to understand. This is Paul's plan, Romans 15, 23. Look at it. It's on your scripture sheet. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Look down at verse 28. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. You understand it? Those were Paul's plans. Set. That's what I planned. He laid it out. But nothing had gone as he planned. Within days of his arrival in Jerusalem, he was arrested. There had been a plot to kill him. While the Romans held him prisoner in Jerusalem, so the Romans, discovering the plot, transferred him, took him as a prisoner to Caesarea, to a prison in Caesarea on the seacoast. There he languished in prison for two years. Felix, the governor, we've already seen it this morning in one of the scriptures, seemed to like him. 
but kept him in custody anyway. Then after Felix came the honorable Festus. Then there was Agrippa and his wife Bernice. Over two years passed. In that time, Paul could have sailed to Rome, visited Rome, visited the church in Rome, spent some time there, and could have already been in Spain planting churches. But there he was, not in Spain, not even started on his trip to Rome, and above all, he was a prisoner in chains. This was not the path Paul planned when he wrote his of his plans in Corinth. He had not expected for the journey to take three years. He had not planned to become a prisoner. He had not planned to arrive in Rome in chains. But I want you to see something. His goal was God-given. His goal of going to Rome had been given by God himself. Look at verse 23, chapter 23, verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. God was saying, Paul, I'm going to take you to Rome. You're going to Rome. You will speak the gospel there. What do we see? God not only has control of our goals. He not only sets our goals, but he sets the way that we will reach those goals. He sets the streets we travel. He doesn't say, now here's my goal for you. You get there any way you can. He says, here's my goal for you. And by the way, you'll go there the way that I say you'll go there. We see this all through Scripture. Moses, remember? The the Jewish young man raised in Pharaoh's palace, taught in Pharaoh's school, but he knew he was Jewish. And here were his people being oppressed, and he knew that God had called him to lead those people out of the oppression of Egypt. And so he walks out and he says, it's time. And he begins to make advances, to make plans toward leading Israel out of Egypt. And he completely failed. Completely. In fact, he had to run for his life out of Egypt. God removed him from Egypt and put him in the wilderness for 40 years. This was a 40-year detour. (laughs) Moses had not planned it that way. He had a God-given goal. And God said, not yet, Moses. You've got to wait 40 years. Wow. God has his reasons. Moses had to learn humility. He had to learn that he could not accomplish these goals in his own strength. 
I read about the life several years ago of a man named Lord Clive. He was on his way to India from England, and his ship was blown way, way off course and way off schedule. Where he was going, supposed to be going down the coast of the, the west coast of Africa, he was caught in a storm and he ended up in Brazil, of all places. And he was forced to stay there for almost a year. During those months, he was going to India to, to a position there. During those months of waiting, he learned Portuguese. That language became crucial in his future. He became the governor general of India. And he himself said, it wouldn't have happened unless I had known Portuguese. In our journey toward God, or in our journey toward goals that we have, some of these goals are God-given. But he will take us down roads and detours that we do not plan to take. What might be one of the reasons for that? Maybe it's to teach us humility. Maybe to teach us to wait. Maybe it's to teach us patience. Maybe it involves some other person. Maybe it's because he is, will take us into other people's lives that under our plans we would have never encountered. The unexpected avenue to a God-given goal, and that brings us to, unex, we look at this passage and you see unexpected audiences for God's message. Unexpected audiences or congregations for God's message. No one could have imagined, Paul could not have imagined when, when this started. He could not have imagined to the congregations to whom he would preach, to the people. Look at Acts 24, 24. After some days, Felix with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. You see, Paul was not just making a defense in a legal matter. Paul was preaching the gospel. Look what he was doing as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Look at Acts 25, 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, This is a man left prisoner by Felix. Now look at Acts 25:22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow... Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Look at Acts 26.1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. 
Then Paul stretched out of his hand and made defense. Now, I want you to see something. In each one of those passages, the worldliest of the world was saying to the greatest preacher of that day, preach to us, speak to us. Do you see this? You've got to laugh at this. The most pagan of pagan people were saying to the greatest preacher of that day, preach to us, we want to hear you. And they were even talking to each other about him saying, you've got to hear this guy. Did you see that? Festus says to Agrippa, you need to hear this man. Let me tell you about who these people were. Felix, Drusilla, Festus, Agrippa II, and Bernice were not your church crowd. They weren't your synagogue crowd. Felix ran with the Caesars, with Claudius, with Nero. That should tell you what kind of man he was. Tacitus the Roman writer confirmed that Felix was a man of low character. He wrote this about him. Felix revealed, or excuse me, Felix reveled in cruelty and lust and wielded the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Drusilla was his third wife. She was not yet 20 years old. She had been the wife of the king of Amasa. But Felix had seduced her and taken her from him. We don't know much about Porius Festus. We do know that he was a friend of Nero. That tells you something. Agrippa was from the family of Herod, and like his father, he was charismatic, he was smart, he was talented, but like his father, he was conniving, he was evil, cruel, he was treacherous. Bernice she was she was a real case. Uh, Bernice was his sister. She was also the sister of Drusilla. And as I said, she was a trip. She first she was first married to Marcus. After after his death, she married her uncle. Then she became the consort of Agrippa II. That's where we see her here. And that was her own brother. After that incestuous relationship, she married the king of Sicily. That marriage did not last long, and she returned to Agrippa. She became a mistress then to the emperor Vespasian, and then to his son, who became emperor Titus. That's who these people were. This is the most unlikely group to hear the gospel. They not only heard the gospel, they heard the greatest preacher of that day preach the gospel at their own invitation. They were fascinated by this man. Not only these five leaders, but their courts. These people had a huge entourage wherever he went. This was like Madonna, Lady Gaga, Mahmoud Abinajad, and Kim Il-jong asking Ravi Zacharias or Billy Graham to preach to them. 
You say that's not going to happen. Well, it happened here. Sometimes God takes you down paths you would never choose for yourselves because he wants to take you into people's lives who are not on the roads that you usually travel. If God intends to use you in someone's life in their way off the road you usually travel, he's going to have to put you on an unusual road to do that. Becky Pippert, author of the book Out of the Salt Shaker, uh, writes about, she, she was a Christian speaker, Christian writer. Her husband was a reporter signed to a desk in Israel in the Middle East. And she, in, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, writes about uh, being in Jerusalem one day and getting off, making a mistake and getting off the bus at a wrong stop. And she quickly became lost. There was a young man there dressed in the usual garb of an ascetic Jew. And an ascetic Jew would be one who uh, would be very much like the Pharisees. He would not ordinarily dare to speak to someone who was not Jewish, and especially in a public place. But he saw that she was obviously lost, and he asked if he could help her. She immediately recognized him as being an ascetic Jew, and she could, he could see the confusion. You're, you're speaking to me. And he said, we're allowed to speak to someone like you when there's obviously need for help. And so he began to direct her, walk with her, take her to the place uh, where she'd be- become oriented and, and catch up with her plans. As they walked, she said, you know, I know that you're very religious, and I want you to know that I'm religious. And he said, she said, and he asked her, he said, are you Jewish? And she said, no, I'm a follower of Jesus. And he just stopped, and he said, I want to talk to you. I have never been able, had the opportunity to talk to a Christian seriously about their faith. And they found a place to talk, and they talked for several hours. He asked questions like, what happens to your basic nature when you have a relationship with Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? How has affected your life? How can you sense God's presence in your life? Becky was more than able to answer those questions. What happened? She got off of the bus at the wrong station by her plans. In accordance with her plans, she got off at the wrong station. By God's plan, she got off exactly where he wanted her to get off. God's unexpected avenue to a God-given goal. The unexpected audience for God's message. Thirdly, I want you to look at this. Let me me stop here for a moment. 
sometimes we have the tendency to think in all those situations, it's about me. It's about me. Sometimes it's not all about you. As we've already seen, it was about taking the gospel to these utterly pagan lives. But something else was going on here. And it's not mentioned here. It's not mentioned in the New Testament. But it's so obvious. Who was Paul's constant companion? From the day they met, more than any other man, he was always with Paul. And he was always, whether it was trouble, whether it was in prison, no matter where it was, this man was always there. It was Luke, right? Who writes in more detail in his gospel than Matthew, than Mark, than John? Luke. Yet Luke did not He did not run with the disciples. He was not with the disciples during the time with Jesus. It was years later, years later, that Luke came into the picture. But the entire time, the three-year period that Paul was in Caesarea, speaking to these kings and governors, Luke was there with him. It gave him time to speak to the apostles in Jerusalem. It gave him time to sit down and talk with John, the apostle. It gave him time to talk with Mary and know the details about the angel and about Elizabeth. This three-year period, was the only time, was the most prolonged time that Luke had in Israel. So this was not happening. Just, if if Paul had not been in prison there, the gospel according to Luke may have never been written. Think about that. The unexpected avenue to God to a God-given goal. The unexpected audience for God's message. Thirdly, I want you to see the unexpected asylum for God's messenger. Look at verse, go back to chapter 23 at the beginning of this. When he's arrested, he's in Jerusalem. There's a conspiracy to kill him. And this centurion is about saving his life. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Paul was taken to safety by 470 Roman soldiers. That was the picture for the next three years. We will see that he was delivered to Rome by a centurion from Caesar's own guard. This was a guard. When when he's delivered in Rome, it's by a centurion that also guarded Caesar. God made the Roman court system Paul's hiding place. 
That's so much like him. Pharaoh became the guardian of Joseph and his family, remember? Pharaoh's palace became the place of safety and training for young Moses. The Philistines hid the would-be king, David, from his adversaries. Artaxerxes was Ezra's benefactor. Here, Paul finds safety and he's hidden in the Roman court system. And all the while, bringing the gospel to the authority, to the authorities, to the Roman authorities. Think about this. In a few, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see it. Think about this. Here's a Roman centurion, a powerful, powerful man who's known by the family of Caesar, known in the palace. And so, Paul is put under whose authority? In fact, he is shackled in the beginning to whom? That centurion. Now, how do you, who do you think is going to win that battle? <laughs> Here's an unsuspecting Roman centurion. And in the providence of God, God shackles him to the apostle Paul. Do you understand? You must smile at this. The Roman court system. Became the protector. In the providence of God. Of that great preacher. There's a very unique friend of mine. I hope that. Sometime in the next two years you will meet her. She has a dynamic, powerful ministry in forbidden places like China and like Tibet. She's a brilliant teacher, has her doctorate. She's invited by governments that are hostile to Christianity. She's invited by universities that are hostile to Christianity to come and teach in different academic disciplines. These people don't know it. But they're inviting a powerful, spirit-filled missionary into the very heart of their doctrinal, constitutional institutions, inviting her to speak, inviting her to teach. There's a boldness that we should have. There's a boldness that comes from knowing this. God sets the goals provides the inroads to reach those goals, and it's all under his control. Look at Acts 23.11 again. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, Paul. 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome. He's saying, Paul, don't be distressed. Don't be put off. Don't let this get you down. You know what you don't hear here? You, you, don't, you don't see Luke. You don't hear about Luke. But he's there. And he's preparing to write the book of Luke. The gospel going to Luke. But you know what else you don't see here? Paul. And we have, we have him preaching. We have him speaking. We have him. Paul is without complaint. You don't hear, you don't see Paul banging his head against the brick wall. You don't hear him cursing these Felix who should have let him go. If he was just, he would have let him go. You don't see Paul rebuking these authorities. You don't see him having a pity party. You don't hear him saying, I've served you all of these years and this is what you do to me? There's so much to learn here. You have to know that the first time Paul stood before Felix, he said, wait a minute. There's no way that I could have gotten to speak in Felix's court. There's no way I could have preached the gospel in Felix's court unless it was this way, that I'm on trial. That's the only way. He had to smile. He had to laugh. Paul understood what was happening. And the bottom line is, it's all in his hand. You hear us speak at Christ Presbyterian over and over again about the sovereignty of God. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to what? His purpose. Those aren't empty words. God has control of those issues. In 1926, there was a young missionary named Raymond Edmund. He was serving as a missionary in the mountains of Ecuador. He became very ill with typhus fever. He was taken by stretcher to, and, and, and he was taken on a stretcher on a train to Gayakil over on the coast. He was put in a hospital there. When his wife arrived, the doctor told her that Raymond was dying. His feet were already cold. There was no hope. A fellow missionary obtained a coffin. He covered the coffin with black cloth. They had not been married that long, and Mrs. Edmund still had her wedding dress And she dyed it black so she would have a mourning dress. The funeral was set for 4 p.m. July the 4th. That's how certain death was. Fast forward 
1967. That was in 1926. Fast forward to 1967. Dr. Raymond Edmond was serving as the fourth president of Wheaton College. He was addressing the student body when he suddenly collapsed and walked through the valley of the shadow of death into God's presence. Forty-one years had passed since that funeral had been planned in Ecuador. Forty-one years of fruitful ministry. You say, what a great story. God had another plan for him. He just said, it's not time for you to die. I have plans for you. Sometimes it goes the other way. Our plans are very long. and He says, no, it's time to come home. But the issue is this. That's in his hand. It's in his hand. Dear people, just surrender to that. Let me ask you. What did you have to do with the day you were born? John Sartell did not say, you know, on September 8, 1944, I will be born in San Diego, California. I had nothing to do with that. And I have nothing to do with the day that God calls me home. Nothing. It's his plan. It's not ours. It's not mine. According to our plans, we may be like Dr. Edmund. We may live well beyond what was our expected death. I just love that story. According to his plan, you'll hear somebody say, well, he died a premature death. There's never been a person die a premature death. Never. No baby, no child, no infant, no teenager has ever died a premature death. We may not accomplish what we set out to do. The important thing for us is that we are at our post, on our way, on God's avenue, on God's roads, going toward a God-appointed goal. That The important thing is we're doing that when he calls us home. We may never finish the assignment that he's written, that he, we think he's written. He may come to us in the middle of that assignment and say, child, time to come home. Where is God when nothing goes as planned? He's taking us to God-given goals by unexpected paths. Where is God when nothing goes as planned? He is taking us down unexpected paths into the lives of unsuspecting people. Where is God when nothing goes as planned? He ever uses the world that is hostile to him to help his people along the way. A friend of mine said it this way. When I find myself in places I did not plan to go, when I find myself in situations I did not, in which I did not plan to be, it usually is only a short time till I understand why I'm there. Our hymn is most appropriate. Guide me, O thou great Jove.